What's up, Bike Rumor fans? This is Anna Schwinn, and I'll be hijacking the Bike Rumor podcast from Tyler for the next couple weeks to talk about this year's Philadelphia Bike Expo, taking place November 2nd and 3rd at the Pennsylvania Expo Center in Philadelphia, PA. Why talk about a bike show? For anyone who's been paying attention, the Philly Bike Expo seems to be a modern anomaly. At a time when much of the bike industry is shrinking and unsinkable trade shows are sinking, the Philly Bike Expo is growing, and it's growing on an inclusive, public-facing format that many industry experts have long written off as obsolete or irrelevant. The show isn't just popular, though. It has fans and enthusiasts. It's an annual can't-miss event for many on the eastern half of the U.S., and if you're a fan of handmade bicycles, there are rock stars of frame building who you can only see at the Philadelphia Bike Expo. And you know what? That's worth talking about. <laughs> to understand more about the event and the effort and spirit behind it that have made it so successful, I'm here with Philly Bike Expo owner and one of the most bike-passionate people I know, Bina Belinky. Thank you so much for joining me, Bina. So you founded the Philly Bike Expo with your father over a decade ago. Can you talk about how the show came to be? So my dad, Steve Belenke, he's a frame builder in Philly. He founded the show with Simon Firth, who was working for him at the time and now does Hanford Cycles. Uh, there were several other dedicated Philly individuals uh, who were involved. This was 2010. I was still in college, but I helped get it off the ground and managed all the exhibitor registrations. By the next year, I was already in the director role so my dad could focus on building bikes, and I've owned the show since 2016. Oh, it's fabulous. Um, can you can you talk about why it was important to start the show? You have Frostbike, you have Interbike, you've got all of these different ride camps that happen in the U.S., and it happens that a lot of these events feature industry talking to industry. You have companies talking to dealers, and there's there's very little involvement with the public. And then the Philadelphia Bike Expo pops up. And this is a show that really doesn't have anything to do with dealers at all. This is uh, a show for the public. It's an exhibition in a more classical sense. Can you talk about why the show was founded that way? Sure. Um, it was pretty simple, actually. Um, you know, I was working for my dad in the shop and we were going to shows, you know, to promote Belinky Cycle Works. And we were just, you know, through all our travels, realizing that there's nothing like this on the East Coast. There's no shows on the East Coast, let alone consumer shows. And that's basically how it was born because it was kind of like, well, if we want a consumer show on the East Coast, we're gonna have to do it ourselves. So we did. And as far as the approach, we basically wanted to create an event for the people, um, an all-inclusive celebration of cycling where attendees would have access to exhibitors, seminars, and workshops that span the entire spectrum of the industry. Um, and at the time, like you said, Interbike was still around. So the industry only model was covered. We wanted the expo to be formative. We wanted it to be insightful. And of course, we wanted it to be a lot of fun. <laughs> that's, that's fabulous. Can you talk about how that particular approach shaped the show and what you did in designing it initially and how it's evolved because of that emphasis? Yeah, so even though we moved to the convention center back in 2013, um, we strive to keep our grassroots family vibe. That's always been very important to us. Uh, many attendees have been coming since- The, sh the first show was in a church, right? Um, <laughs> so the first, the first three years were in the 23rd Street Armory, which is like this cool alternative, you know, stone building from way back in the day. And then we actually did hold the seminars in a church that was around the corner. So we, we pretty much outgrew that space within the first year, uh, but I wanted to be cautious and moving to the convention center was such a, a big move um, that I waited another couple years to be sure that the trends were continue to be on the upward before I made the big move. Why was it important to physically grow the show? Uh, why wouldn't you keep it as this um, small sort of like highly curated event? Well, I mean, my vision has always been for growth, just growth without losing, you know, the vibe and the atmosphere that we curated. What makes us unique, you had mentioned that there's no dealer component at the show, but what makes us unique is that we, we're kind of a hybrid show. You know, we're a consumer-facing show as well as 
um, having an industry element because it's like a branding showcase. Uh, it's inclusive for artisan makers, specialty accessory and component producers, and even major bike brands that supply the IBD market. So Philly's kind of the place to tell your story and to get feedback from consumers as well as meet with you know buyers and market influencers. And what's really cool about um, this year with Interbike not being around anymore. So for the first time this year, Philly's the first place in the U.S. Um, where brands are debuting their newest products that they've just launched at, um, at Eurobike. So they go from Eurobike and then they're shown for the first time in the U.S. at the Philly Bike Expo. So talking more about like what you've done with the show since since owning the show, this has been your show since 2016. You started talking about your vision. I personally have observed a lot of the subversive but very sort of positive moves you've made around inclusivity and promoting diversity of people and perspectives within your show. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that's been important for you as a show owner and, and the benefits of that also? It's obviously a multifaceted issue. One part is for the exhibitors. Um, obviously, like all tradespeople, business owners, etc., face obstacles in their business, in their careers, but underrepresented groups face more than most. The other part of it is the attendees. I guess I feel fortunate to have a platform to inspire and educate people on cycling. I want women to come to the show, non-binary folks, people of color to walk in and see diversity and inclusion reflected in the exhibitors and the seminar offerings. I feel like that will inspire them to race, to learn to build frames, to apply for an industry job, or even just to buy their first bike. Wherever they are in their cycling, wherever their you know passion lies, I want every person who walks in the door to have the same feeling of I can do that. So I have to ask, as as one person who's grown up in the industry to the other, you know, has has your upbringing and your exposure influenced those decisions? I think so. You know, I was fortunate to have my dad supporting me in my goals throughout even just, you know, starting out just working at the shop. I was just one of the people working at the shop. I wasn't like the girl in the office. We've made gender equity inclusion in the expo a top priority since its inception. But my dad, he was the one who organized a women's panel the very first year of the expo before it was even a thing. You know, now it's so, you know, kind of primitive and every show has one. Um, But this was, you know, 10 years ago. You know, it was even a year or two before I got invited to be on a women's panel at Sea Otter. So like we were doing it before that. It was so important to him and really a no brainer. And it set the tone for each expo moving forward. It's also worth saying that in the early years, Philadelphia Bike Expo was one of a portfolio of shows that you and your father had. My first exposure to a a women's panel was at the Heartland Bellow Show, which is a show you put on in Madison, Wisconsin in 2011, I think, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you you were taking that model on the road. I I know we've already sort of passed this in the interview, but I guess I'm curious at this point, there was the Heartland Velo show. Was there another show in San Diego? San Diego. Yeah. Good guess. (laughs) (laughs) So why so many shows in the beginning? It's a lot of work and it's so much work to do remotely. It's so much work. I think in the beginning, I was just so stoked on shows. I had just graduated college. I got my degree in recreation park and tourism science you know, with a concentration in tourism resource management, and it all just kind of fit. And people started reaching out to me. And I think at that point, I hadn't learned to say no yet. (laughs) And so it was sort of a combination of just being like, really excited about, you know, awesome bike shows all over the country, and that I hadn't really, you know, figured out where my overextension point was. And, you know, I was able to pull those shows off, but I just felt that I wasn't able to give each one. Like that year, I had three shows. I did Heartland, I did San Diego, and I did Philly all in one year. And I just felt that I couldn't give each one the attention that they deserved. And, you know, my heart was always in Philly since that's my hometown. And 
and being in the same town and, you know, having access to the resources and the people and the connections obviously makes a huge difference, you know, with logistics and promotion and all that. And I just really wanted to be able to focus on Philly and give it everything I had and, you know, really develop it into something special. And so that's why I didn't continue with other shows. I've had people reach out to me since and no, I've learned and I say, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So, uh, and, and another sort of striking component to not just the Philly show, but the shows, the satellite shows you ran is the, the very sort of prominent representation of independent builders, of, of handmade bicycle builders. And, you know, undoubtedly that's is partially because of the affiliation with Belinky Cycle Works. Can you talk about what your approach has been with that particular segment within the show? How many frame builders do you think you have that come to the show? We usually have about 40. And it's really cool because even though the show has grown to 200 plus exhibitors, we continue to have a great mix of companies with a large frame builder presence who we definitely dote on. You know, it's in my blood. Um, They're, you know, like the foundation of the show since, you know, it was founded by my dad and Simon, both, you know, great frame builders. And so we want to keep that, you know, vibrant and, you know, an important component of the show. And, and, and one of the striking things is it's, it's very common when you have collections of builders, you know, I'll, I'll point out and pick on a little bit uh, Bespoked, which is a fabulous uh, handmade show in England. With with shows like this, there is usually like a large emphasis on awards and awards to celebrate builders and bicycles, but also to to elevate those uh, craftsmen for visibility. Philly very noticeably only has one award, and that one award is a People's Choice Award for handmade bikes. Can you talk about why you've made this decision rather than, you know, sort of fall into the the pattern of of awards and the whole sort of pageantry around delivering awards to, to small builders? Why have you taken this other approach? <laughs> so part of, you know, like I, you know, always come back to is like the vibe, the atmosphere, you know, the family grassroots thing. And I just, I've always felt that, you know, heavy competition with awards gets in the way of that. It's hard to be objective with awards, you know, when you're selecting judges. Um, And that's why the people's choice is so cool because it's very simple and anybody can win. You know, we've had a huge range of winners over the years for the people's choice. And I just, I love the vibe at the show and how it's become this like warm and fuzzy frame builder reunion every year, even though it's, you know, a great business opportunity. And I hear from builders every year, you know, that they took orders and, you know, it was great and they got to reconnect with their customers. Um, It's also a time for us to all get together and hang out. And I just, I don't feel like, you know, having a bunch of awards furthers that. Can you talk about how you put together the seminar list? Because I know this is a this is something that you're very deliberate about, and it is a mix. It's a very sort of like broad offering of different people uh, talking about different topics. Can you talk about developing seminars year to year? Yeah, we want something for everybody, and so we do that through our seminar lineup, um, and we make sure that it consists of everything from lifestyle and cycling culture, to tech clinics, cool old bike history, build trends, um, safety and advocacy, the list goes on. I'm happy to run down a few of the offerings we have, but um, I'd challenge someone to not find at least one seminar that interests them. What are you excited about this year in terms of your seminar schedule? Aisha's our latest seminar signup, and we literally had, (laughs) I think, one slot left. So um, it all worked out perfectly. We have to stop and say this is this is Aisha McGowan, who is just an amazing athlete and advocate and human being who is on plight to become the first black woman professional racer in the U.S. Yes. Yeah, so she's coming and she's going to have 
a table and exhibitor space, but more exciting for me is she's going to be presenting a seminar and she's going to be presenting on diversity and inclusivity, but specifically about how to talk about it, which is so cool. Like we were kind of going over some options for seminars and she mentioned that and I was, you know, immediately I said, yes, you know, many people have a difficult time talking about these issues or don't even know how to. And as a result, don't, you know, which of course keeps things stagnant and not moving forward. It's not always comfortable and we might not always say the right thing, but avoiding it is not the solution. And so having Aisha there, you know, getting the conversation going and giving people, you know, feedback on how to start these conversations in their, you know, workplace or in their club or in their race team um, is so important. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to be adding that to the seminar schedule for this year. Oh, that's awesome. What else do you have on the docket? Like, what what can I look forward to? <laughs> so we're going to have wheel building again um, by Jessica Brousseau. I don't know if you know her. Um, she is one of the race mechanics for the Live team. And she's awesome. She comes from somewhere like British Columbia. And we just love having her. We also have a beat the pro mechanics challenge this year, uh, which is going to be really fun. <laughs> what does that entail? <laughs> Basically how it sounds, um, you know, amateurs can sign up to try and beat a pro mechanic um, and then they get prizes and bragging rights if they do. Over, over mechanicing, right? Not like a foot race. No, <laughs> I think there's going to be like different stations. I don't know all the details yet, but I think it's going to be a fun spectator activity for sure. And then I don't know if you know Nam. She does the uh, WTF Bike Explorers and they just did a summit. And so they're going to be doing a like report back and discussion on that. And then this may sound kind of boring to some, but very necessary is um, finance and bookkeeping 101 for small business owners. And Hazel Rose. Yeah. Right? And coming all the way from the West Coast to do that, which is so amazing. We should definitely talk about Hazel's accolades for a minute. Uh, she's done books for PDW and a few other familiar brand names within the cycling industry. So if you're looking for someone to help you with your books, who's sympathetic to the plight of uh, those in the bike industry, Hazel's your person. Yes. <laughs> And we decided to do the seminar during the industry hour in the morning. So hopefully all the frame builders can go to it. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say uh, that. I'll be playing. I'll be playing that. Well, maybe. <laughs> Screw it. I'll leave it in. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, <laughs> is Georgina Terry coming? Yes. And she's going to be doing. Yes. She is doing a seminar on like women's specific design but obviously that's sort of you know like a hot topic lately and so her topic now is going to be is it necessary so are like women's specific designs and bicycles really necessary so i'm super excited about that you know she's been building bikes for a long long time she has a couple other women on the panel with her and i'm looking forward to that i'm hoping someone will video it so i can watch it um, and then how hard is that for you? You book all of these great, I know. these great people to come in and talk and you, you don't get to actually experience any of your own show. No, I never get to see any <laughs> seminars and I also never get to shop. I have to sit there at the front while all of my staff and volunteers come and show me like, look at this great deal I got on this. Look at this awesome new product. And it's like, cool. Maybe I'll see it in the coverage after the expo. Is it is it more of a problem because your small army of of brothers and sisters, uh, and they're all younger, right? You're the oldest. I'm the second oldest. Uh, <laughs> so you've got the small army of siblings out there, and they're like having a great time. They're, they're they're still accountable to you, but they're they have quite a bit more freedom than you do on the floor. Um, you know, as someone with siblings, I I would be challenged by that. Yeah. Personally. Well, my older sister, she teaches the yoga for cyclists because she's a yoga therapist and instructor. And so she has some freedom because she teaches, you know, one session each day. 
But my brother, he definitely taken one for the team. He does a lot. And he'll stay up on like Friday night and Saturday night working on pre-registration stuff while I go to bed early. So I think he worked equally, if not harder than me on the weekend of. So he's awesome. I couldn't do it without him. And speaking of, your brother's on the Philadelphia Bike Expo competitive team, correct? No, we only have a women's team. He's been wearing kit. Yes. Let's talk about that, though. Why Why do you have a team? You're, you're a bike show. Well, promoting and increasing women's participation in the bike industry, the race circuit, and cycling in general is very important to me, to us. And developing a women's race team seemed like the right step to show my commitment. I'm super proud of the team that we've built, and we're expanding to five full-time riders for the 2020 season, road season. And we currently have four women racing cyclocross, two in the UCI circuit. (laughs) Don't quote me on that one. This is why I don't race. (laughs) So, you know, you're showing that commitment. There's also like a publicity aspect to it because I don't know how else to say this, but you've got some pretty cool athletes on your team. They have been just fabulous uh, ambassadors for the community. You've got people who are outreaching. They're fast. They're cool. um, They do good things. Typically, when people race, they just go race. But you have you have some really talented people. Do you want to do you want to give any of them a shout out? Sure. Um, I've been building the team with Taylor Cook White for the last several years. Um, she raced by herself for two years, which really showed commitment to what we were building. I just you know I didn't have the budget at the time to make it any bigger, and she just kept plugging away. And one of the really cool things about her is she's always made like a race family at every race she goes to she sets up the tent and she invites other people to warm up with her and we've carried that over into this season we brought on another full-time rider samantha fox who's incredible and um super dedicated to growing the team as well and something that people have pointed out to us is like wow you let other people warm up under the tent with you and that's what it's all about. And so we've had people, you know, reaching out, wanting to join the team because they just, they love the family vibe. They love the inclusion and, you know, whether or not someone's guest riding for us or what have you, you know, we welcome everybody to come and hang out with us, um, you know, before, during, and after the race. And, and we love that. That's, that's what we're about. Super cool. Uh, So now we get to talk about the thing I really want to talk about and I'm super excited about for this year, which is the SRAM Diversity Scholarship, which is a collaboration between you and SRAM, the giant components maker. Can you talk about how that project came about and, and why it was such an important thing for you as an emphasis? I think it's important at events because you have the opportunity to reach thousands of people, you know, to set an example, if you will. Millions of people, millions of people. (laughs) I'm being modest. Um, Every single person can make a difference if they choose to, but I feel like a responsibility since I have a large audience. We have a long way to go, but I, you know, had folks from other shows reach out for advice on making their event more inclusive. I guess rewind a little bit for the last several years, I've been trying to figure out how to get more exhibitors that were women, more non-cisgender builders, and people of color into the show. And what I realized was I needed to actively make it happen, not just like think about, you know, what, if, how. And I did some digging and got some feedback and did some brainstorming sessions with folks I respect and who are doing great work in the industry. That turned into a meeting at Sea Otter with Kate Pallinson from SRAM. And that was followed by a conference call with their whole team. Honestly, though, it didn't take too much talking because we all knew how important it was and what needed to happen. The SRAM Inclusivity Scholarship was born. That entails providing booth space, build kits, travel, and accommodations for four builders from underrepresented populations in frame building. It seems like with a show that's as inclusive as yours to begin with, that there would be less of a threshold for builders who, I mean, frankly, aren't 
white cisgender men to attend. You know, if you've already got a show that is inclusive and is inviting to underrepresented groups within cycling, why why bump that up a level? Why push to secure resources to basically fully accommodate these builders in coming to show? I guess it comes back to getting more women, more non-cisgender builders, and more people of color into frame building and the industry as a whole. And to do that, we need representation. You know, like I said, if some person of color walks into the show and all they see is, you know, white frame builders, are they going to feel like, oh, yeah, this is something I can do. This is accessible for me. You know, maybe, but maybe not. So I think it's important to allocate resources for the builders themselves so that they can be there and continue, you know, building awesome bikes and being a part of the frame building community, but also for attendees who maybe want to buy a bike from a builder that they can relate to, or maybe they want to get into building themselves. The pool of white dude frame builders is pretty large. So like if five of them don't come, we still have a lot to choose from. If five women builders don't come, then we might not have any. And so we have to do a little bit more work. You know, we have to dig a little deeper and put a little more effort into bringing them here. I mean, it's really all it comes down to. You know, we have to do whatever it takes to have underrepresented populations at expos and events for the exhibitors, for the attendees. I think that having an official program or project in place keeps us accountable and taking action rather than just talking about, you know, what we'd like to see happen, you know, next year or in the future. So let's talk about these builders, (laughs) which I'm super excited about because as someone who personally is a massive fan of frame building in general, the four builders that SRAM is bringing to the show, they're four of my favorites, period, bar none. So I'm I, as as an aficionado and as somebody who's more or less sort of committed to knowing and enjoying and appreciating this community, I'm very excited. Do you want to talk about about who's coming? Because um, spoiler alert to to my listeners out there, we will be speaking to these builders over the next few weeks, so you have that to look forward to, and there'll be tons of pictures for you to enjoy. But Bina, tell me tell me about these builders and why you're yeah, excited about them. Yeah, so we have. Megan Dean of Moth Attack, and we have Jackie Montner of Untitled Cycles, and Julianne Petalino of Petalino Bicycles, and Danielle Sean of Sean's Studio. And Megan, Danielle, and Julianne have all been to the expo in the past. Um, Jackie has not been yet, so I'm super excited to see her work. Megan and Julianne and Danielle were really awesome in kind of, you know, providing feedback and being a sounding board for me as I worked on this project, um, which kind of leads me to how this year was sort of an unofficial selection process as I chose builders who, you know, had been, like I said, like a sounding board, a forum um, for my inclusivity quest. You know, pilot years always have their challenges and next year we'll have an official application and we'll definitely make it a priority to have representation from people of color. What would you like to have happen with the scholarship or with with this initiative of yours going into frame building, particularly as an area of development within inclusivity? Yeah, I I definitely want to keep it focused on frame building. Um, like I said, it's kind of my, you know, it's my passion. It's in my blood and it's the foundation of the show. I would love for it to continue with SRAM. Um, You know, we haven't had that conversation yet, but I would love for it to be an every year thing. You know, we'll have a application that folks can fill out and I would have a board of people to help me with the selection so that I'm not just choosing people whose bikes I like the most. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, and then I guess also something you and I kind of chatted about was some sort of like mentor program. I'd love to see that turn into something. Um, You know, we see a lot of people going to, you know, frame building schools and classes 
and then they get out and it's sort of like, well, what now? I would love to work on, you know, kind of like a mentorship where graduates of, you know, UBI and other schools get matched with a frame builder, kind of like help them through that uncertain time of getting their business going, building their first frames, and even work on scholarships for underrepresented folks, um, you know, to go to classes and maybe even have classes, you know, they're like women's only classes or classes for non-binary folks, just something where it's like they feel as comfortable as possible and it's, you know, as accessible as possible. So those are just some kind of, you know, ideas that are in my head that um, I'd love to work on in the future. Well, that's super exciting. And still talking about the future, what are your goals for the Philly Bike Expo for the next 10 years? <laughs> because you're, you've got 200 ex- exhibitors now, you've, you've sold out of your conference space, which is, you know, 10 years ago, something you couldn't have fathomed uh, to do, I'm, I'm willing to bet. You know, where, where do you think this goes from here? Or where would you like it to go, ideally, I guess? Luckily, there's a lot of space at the convention center and our hall opens up into another hall so we could double the space. I guess (laughs) it falls into that same thing of like growth without losing the roots. I absolutely love being in contact personally with every exhibitor. I don't think that I ever want to get big enough that I'm hiring sales staff um, and other registration managers I just, I love it so much. I love being able to answer their questions and knowing who they are and greeting them at the expo. You know, maybe it's selfish of me not to want to share that, but I feel like that also keeps the vibe of the show, you know, where it's very personal. I don't, I don't want to lose that in the growth. So while I'm open to, you know, growing larger, I don't ever want to grow too big that I don't know my exhibitors' names and what they do. I have many friends who exhibit at Philly, and the customer service, especially with respect to you, is one of the things that they consider and 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 speak about being one of their favorite aspects of the event. So nice work. Thank you. Way to go. Thank you. <laughs> You're way too modest about this show. Uh, um, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm, yeah. I'm like in my on my piece of paper, I'm like, we could do the third head topics where we talk about growing up in shops, which is what literally everybody who's like, you're going to interview Bina. Are you going to talk about the grossest job you've had uh, growing up in like a bike shop? Um, You know, and for me, that was cleaning out the men's bathroom at Waterford. See, I think we had we had opposite opposite jobs, but I think that yours probably helped you a little bit more because now you're like a product engineer and a mechanic and I still can like only half change (laughs) a flat. So So we both grew up in our father's, our family's um, bike factories. What were your jobs growing up in the, uh, in the builder space? (laughs) So my earliest memory is sitting on the floor in the office just Wait. sorting like deposit and withdrawal. Slips. Wait, the office and of the building that maybe... is there now, is it the same space? Yes, if you want to call it an office. I'm calling it an office, but it's not an office in what most people would consider one. Well, it's a closet um, full of, of desks and It's cats. a closet full of junk towering to the ceiling with a whiteboard in the background that holds the key to... <laughs> everything oh my god so So that's your earliest memory is sitting on the floor looking at receipts well my dad I think I was like I don't know eight or ten and my dad would give me you know stacks of bank slips and I would sort them into like the proper envelopes and that was my earliest memory and then life (laughs) not of life just okay (laughs) of shop life (laughs) my gosh I'm like I'm so, not I'm not quite but that shop bad. Life, <laughs> shop life kind of is life so I guess you could say earliest memory of life but no just that was my earliest memory of like working in the shop um and then I kind of did you know stuff here and there for him you know answering phones that sort of thing and then um I really 
got involved, I guess when I was a teenager and he called me one day and he was like, Hey, I got a lot of office work here and you need your car insurance paid. What do you think? (laughs) And I was like, all right. So (laughs) that was the start of that. And so I ended up basically, you know, running the entire shop um, for several years until I went off to school and I still did a lot from college, but obviously not as much. Um, And so I was, you know, marketing person, customer service, retrofit order taker, um, Jamaican food getter, all, all the things. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, cat herder. Had oh. to herd all the cats. Uh, so many cats at Blinky. Uh, it's Cycle Works, right? Yep, Blinky Cycle Works. Yeah, and your, your dad's sort of Anglophilism, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things about him as a builder. Um, the fact that it is uh, Blinky Cycle Works has always kind of made me chuckle. Yep. Um, Yep. Did you, did, was there, uh, you know, was there a point where you like cut tubes, learn how to miter? Have you, have you, uh, has anybody taken you aside and been like, all right, while your dad's not looking, we're going to learn how to build a bike together? No. Um, No. That kind of goes back to, that kind of reminds me, you brought up something I haven't thought about in like years and years. I took a brazing class when I was, I don't know, maybe like 15. It was at like the art center and I went with my older sister and we took this class together and it did not go great. And I ended up with a lot of t-shirts filled with holes and a really ugly tree sculpture thing that only my grandmother would put in her house. And I think maybe that was when my dad realized that he was just going to like let me do what I was best at, which was selling bikes. (laughs) And I've never been, I've never been like a crafty person. So I never felt drawn to it. I just loved, I love bikes and I loved being able to organize the shop (laughs) and talk to customers and make sure their bikes were delivered on time the way they wanted them. And um, I've always been kind of into bike design a little bit. Um, so I worked with my dad on the bike that I rode in Africa, just on like geometry. Um, but that was probably as deep as I ever got into building. I just, I never, I never wanted to. (laughs) And, um, I think once he saw my brazing results, he didn't try. And I think also he knew that if he turned me over to the building side, then he would lose all the organization and I was the only person to be able to do that he'd have to train another one of his kids to uh to exactly file. and nobody else no one else wanted any part of it so <laughs> actually my little sister she worked in the shop a little bit when I think she was like grounded and she wasn't allowed to do anything else and I don't think it was like her favorite time well, so how was that where it's like, that's the place that you want to be and where you're sort of like gravitating towards and then it's a punishment for one of your siblings? Yeah, I know. It's so funny because I, I always loved working in the shop, but me and my dad, like we've always been close and I've always been the quintessential like daddy's girl. And I just loved being there and being able to, you know, help get the bikes made and be a part of it well you know so 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 you might have this um whenever I go into a shop where sort of like similar like coolants are being used to you know the the shop back home I I get like warm and fuzzy inside uh you know like it it just makes me very comfortable to like smell these like industrial like lubricants I don't, I don't know if you have it. I around. definitely, I definitely feel that. <laughs> even, it's so weird. Even if, like, I see, even if I see like a McMaster car catalog oh, right? on like a desk somewhere, <laughs> I'm like, oh. Like machinery. And you're like, oh, that's adorable. Like, 
oh, what an adorable, like, like cutting tool. That's precious. And it's like, it's not the typical response that people have to, uh, you know, like machining equipment, industrial equipment, to be somebody who sort of like moves around in those spaces like that and, and have that be home. It's, it's a very unusual mindset to have. So that, you know, your, your end bikes, your Africa bike. I just want to talk about your Africa bike because we've never actually talked about it. I'm a very big fan. I know exactly which bike it is. I have fawned over it for some time. I want to hear you get that nerdy bike, about your Africa bike, Bina. <laughs> that bike was like the bike to end all bikes. I just, after I had that bike, I never thought about building another bike. It was everything. I rode that from Sudan to South Africa on everything from like sandy desert crossings to, you know, miles and miles of flat paved road to like loose, rocky switchbacks in Ethiopia. Um, I kept the same tires on this the whole time. Um, okay, except for one day I changed them out to do a time trial and then I changed them right back. And I just... I love it. Like it's it's just so versatile. Like I mean, backing backing up, we have to back up. You rode across Africa from Sudan to South Africa. Did you did you design this bike with your dad for that trip specifically? Were you like, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride across Africa. I need bike. Let's build the bike, and then I will take that that was that was basically it. Because I had I had a touring bike, you know, just kind of like a traditional touring bike, and I wanted something that was gonna take you know, a little bit fatter tire, something that was going to have a little more clearance for the off-road stuff. Um, and in true Steve Belinky fashion, that bike was delivered the night before I left to fly to Khartoum. <laughs> and he actually picked up parts from the QBP warehouse in Pennsylvania on his way to my house. Oh, my God. Oh. So oh, it was how, like. How did you handle that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, it was kind of my fault, so I didn't I didn't take it out on him because we actually built a different bike first. I was so opposed to the like sloping top tube. I was like, I don't want that girl style bike. I don't like it. Like I want a traditional top tube. And so we did that. And are you I talking like horizontal top some... tube, like traditional double diamond frame because you're secretly an old man because you've been in the bike industry for your whole life? Basically, <laughs> like I wanted like I wanted like traditional road bike geometry, even though that's not where I was going. And I wanted like a straight top tube. <laughs> and I took that bike out. I think my dad made it with like this, a teeny tiny I feel this a hundred percent and I do the same thing. I do the same thing. I'm like, I'm going to do this bike and I default to like, to like 1975, even though I'm like 35 years old. Well, I just like the expo, one of the seminars for this year by um, Mike Cohn from Boulder Bicycle. He's talking about like the seventies road bike something. And I'm like, yes, that's me. Like, (laughs) that's my idea of a bike. But so, so I end up with this bike that has just the tiniest bit of slope because my dad just kind of snuck in a little tiny bit. And I took this you thing saw out it. on some trails. <laughs> I took it out on trails in central Pennsylvania and it did not go well. And the whole time I was thinking, man, if I just had a little more clearance, this would be way more comfortable. And so I called my dad and I was like, yeah. And he's like, all right, we'll build another one. So then that's how I ended up with the teeny tiny bike with the super slopey top tube that ended up being my everything bike. And I didn't get another bike until this year when I had a hardtail built up for like, you know, mountain mountain biking. Do you, so how many, how many custom bikes do you have? I only have two. My dad, two. Well, and Justin and I have a tandem, so two and a half. Probably if it was, like, easier for me to find bikes in my size, I would probably have a lot more bikes. But between my teeny tiny size and my dad's lead time, that's not conducive <laughs> to me having lots of bikes. 
but I did have that other touring bike with couplers what? and my dad sold it. It even had my name. It even had my name on the top tube and he sold it. Did he it. scratch your name off first or did he upcharge for it because it had your name on it? I don't know. Yeah, because that wasn't one that I had actually like bought or anything. And he had just like built it up for me. And so I guess he felt like, well, it's his bike. And he did ask permission. And I was really, and that was also at the time when I had the white bike. And I was like, I don't need that bike. I only need this bike in my life. Uh, Blinky's in script on that particular bike, right? Yeah. Um, the script, um, Blinky, has been a thing for a while. Um, I would say that's kind of like the standard. Um, but lately, it's been, you know, some people do like the block lettering. Um, but the script has been kind of the thing for for a long time. And so that's why I wanted it because it was at a time where people were starting to like request other, you know, fonts. And I just wanted like the classic Belinky look. <laughs> See, same thing. I'm going back to like, the old man 70s road bike. <laughs> it's it's completely true. I was just gonna say at least I didn't at least I didn't paint it British racing green. Then that would have taken it to like the next level. <laughs> um <laughs> like what what is your favorite like you talk about how you love 70s 70s frames and sort of like uh, a classic road aesthetic. What what is your your favorite what's your favorite trend from the nineties from your childhood that hasn't come back yet? Hmm, that's For a good me, question. There are there are some paints that I really miss. I don't know. Um, I'm thinking of you know prior to like remember when Ch Chameleon came out? Yes. And like the the first like Chameleon bikes and that that was kind of happening in like the mid mid late nineties. Yeah, I kind of miss. I kind of miss the like my dad used to do these like almost like marbling colors. Yeah, and. I don't know that I would ever paint a bike that, but I kind of miss seeing it. Like you see so many of like his old bikes were like some version of that, either like maroon or British racing green, but like this marbling, <laughs> you know, um, almost like camo in a sense. Oh, the marbling got so but, gross too. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think I like it per se. It's just like nostalgic for me. Like I see it and I'm like, oh, I like that. <laughs> So, um, I don't know. So you've got this do-it-all bike and you've got this tandem and you've got this mountain bike. Um, given, given the lead times, you know, do you, do you want another bike? Are you thinking of a new bike? What is your next bike if you get one? So my mountain bike is actually kind of a cool story. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, EWR, uh, Eastern Woods Research. They built some mountain bikes back in the 90s and, you know, they had like a cult following and they were built to be like, you know, central Pennsylvania, like rock garden bikes. And then in about like, I guess it was 2009, they had like, you know, they put them back into production and my dad's shop actually built that um, batch of them. And so... This mountain bike is an EWR from 2009 or 2010. I really love it and I'm really enjoying it, but I also have hopes and dreams of a custom mountain bike in the future, possibly titanium. Ooh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think that would be the only thing. because Because I don't race, I don't really feel the need for like, a super road bike I like the idea of being able to like ride my gravel bike and wherever I end up like I'll be good and I'll have an enjoyable ride I'm so slow that putting me on like a light fast bike is still not going to make me fast so I may as well just chill and ride my gravel bike <laughs> and have a good time I know I'm very matter of fact about my slowness <laughs> well and I got my riding style from my dad, too, who, like, on one of our very first rides together, like, when I was an adult, I nearly crashed into him because he stopped short to, like, pick berries. I think that's why my brother stopped riding with us. 
because my brothers, he's like, he does triathlons and he did cyclocross for a little bit. And he does these, you know, epic, you know, 200 mile days. And me and my dad were like content to do, you know, 50 miles with like five cafe berry cheese shop stops. (laughs) And my dad's also famous for like mapping out routes using his fingers as like a measuring thing. So he'll be like, oh, this route is like 50 miles. And then like 50 miles into the ride, he's like, oh, I guess it was like 75. (laughs) And we're doing it all at like 12 miles an hour. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's an all day affair. But I mean, that's, that's delightful and leisurely. And, and you're worth it. You deserve that. Well, and that's what I love about bikes is like, you can enjoy bikes in whatever form works for you. Like whether that's racing at high speeds or, you know, daily commutes or, you know, meandering farm roads and cafes. Like, it's amazing. So you've got this sort of like, like love of all things cycling, um, a, a whole life experience just sort of submersed in bicycles. The Philly Bike Expo is basically the very sort of powerful physical embodiment of that celebration, which is very cool. That seems to be what it is. That's what it feels like. One of the big uh, sort of struggle points with the industry in general general for a lot of people is that it's very, there are a lot of brands or segments of, of cycling that are that are very exclusive where, you know, speed is valued over everything else. And, you know, how new something is, is valued um, more than anything else or, you know, who's riding it or how difficult it is uh, to get something, how inaccessible something is. There's value in all of these things, you know, and then you have Philly Bike Expo over here who's like, everything's wonderful. It's a bicycle. All bicycles are wonderful. The whole picture of bicycles is wonderful. So it's it doesn't it doesn't sort of just set itself apart from the rest of the industry by being a show that's for the public. It's a show that actually celebrates everything in a very positive way. And you've accomplished it and you've got a model that's growing when most of the industry is is shrinking and having panic attacks about, you know, the end times with respect to bicycles. That's that's a hell of a, an accomplishment. <laughs> You don't you don't give yourself enough credit or toot your own horn enough, Bina. But um, that's really a feat, especially in this climate. And I hope more people look to your model for a way to be and a way to use a platform to do good things and spread good vibes. And that's where I want to end this. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. After speaking to Bina, it's easy to see why the show's so popular. And when you come to Philadelphia for the Bike Expo. Bina's passion for bicycles and cycling at large is felt throughout the show hall. This event sets itself apart by proactively inviting everyone in, which may be more of a statement on the current state of the cycling industry than anything else. Stay tuned over the next few weeks as we talk to the people around the SRAM and Philadelphia Bike Expo scholarship this year. I'll be talking to some of my favorite builders, and I promise it'll get nerdy. If you want more interviews like this, Hit the podcast link on Bike Rumor and let us know who you want to hear from. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, friends. You are all diamonds. Stay dry.